Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect as usual. Okay. A very solid Monday. Sun's out. It's going to be a great day. I'm really looking forward to it actually. And so we're going to dig into the Q&A. We got a little bit of a sort of like a client case study to go over here that I think think will be helpful. And this comes from Dory. Um, Dory says, I have a client with an ongoing sense of pressure in the left sacral area and left upper back lower cervical area when she squats. She shifts to the left when she squats, but it gets a little bit better each set, but it does persist. She's limited in end range hip flexion, but not straight leg raise, which is about 100 degrees. Hip external rotation is limited, shoulder flexion is limited on the left, but not so much on the right. She'll often complain of soreness after hinging activities in her left hamstring. Any strategy that may be helpful to alleviate the pressure in the hamstring soreness would be appreciated. Okay, so the first thing we want to do is let's deconstruct what we're actually looking at, and then we can actually come up with a, with a viable and useful strategy. So let me grab the pelvis here for a second. So, so Dory, you gave me some really, really good cues here. Um, in regards to a couple of things. So, so the left shift in the squat gives us a little bit of a, of a clue that we've got a, a, a sacrum that is going to be oriented into a right-facing position. Now the question mark is, is why is that? And so the limitation in, in hip flexion gives us a little bit of a clue along with the, the straight leg raise. So the straight leg raise is, is a little bit more, more than normal. So chances are we don't have this posterior lower compressive strategy. So, so the constant orientation here in this lower part of the pelvis below the level of the trochanter is probably not there. So we're probably still a little eccentrically oriented there. But we do have a, a, a uh, posterior compression at the sacral base. And so the giveaway there is the limited end range hip flexion. And so to, to have normal hip flexion, that full end range hip flexion, the lumbar spine has to be able to turn towards the, the hip flexing side and that sacral base needs to be able to come back on that side. So chances are you've got a compression here. And so we've got something that kind of looks like that. So, so we're pushing the sacrum. So it's pushing and facing the right, which is why she squats and shifts backwards and to the left. And, and so what we're gonna have to do is we're gonna have to alleviate this, this compression. So the lack of ER on this left side also reinforces the fact that you've got this compressive strategy and that's bringing the, the orientation of the pelvis forward more so on the left than it is on the right. So we have kind of a unilateral issue here. Uh, both sides are affected obviously as they always are, but we're gonna focus in on, on this left side. So the first thing that we're gonna wanna do is we're gonna reduce this, this anterior orientation. Now, um, your client complains of left hamstring soreness, which is not a shocker because she's got a, a, an eccentrically oriented hamstring on this side. So when the pelvis gets pushed forward, it's oriented forward. This ischial tuberosity moves further from the, from the, uh, the femur, which means I've got eccentric orientation here. And then I've got, like I said, the, the eccentrically oriented hamstring. So every time that you put her into a hinging scenario, you've got a lot of eccentric orientation there, which was gonna increase that, that load on the hamstring. It's probably why she gets, gets sore. So what we're gonna to have to do is we're gonna to have to bring the orientation back by grabbing hold of this ischial tuberosity. Now, how do you do that? Well, we have to consider that we really want the proximal musculature of the hip to control the position of, 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 the, of the pelvis relative to the femur, but 
the further forward you go and the further away from the, the femur of this ischial tuberosity, the more we're going to have to use hamstring as an assist because if we look at this from a, from a Euclidean geometric standpoint or the old school moment arms, um, we lose the glute max moment arm as we flex the hip and then hamstring moment arm actually increases. So we're going to use the hamstring to help us pull this back. So now we're talking about hook lying activities. We're looking at just your, your classic glute bridge progression, if you will. A couple things that you may want to consider under these circumstances is that if, if you do find that as she performs her glute bridge, her knees separate, we want to put something between her knees like a yoga block or a ball or, or a cat or something like that, that we can keep the knees together so we don't move into this, this externally rotated position because what we're trying to do is we're trying to recapture this hip extension and as close as we get the hip extension, that's more of our hip IR moment and so we don't want the knees to be, to be separating under those circumstances. Um, but like I said, you, you work from this, this hip extension uh, progression to where you can get the hip fully extended. And so I would refer you to an armbar video that I did a while back where you can actually see um, the, the progression to the fully extended hip with the foot on the wall during an armbar. So you can actually progress them towards those type of activities and then eventually bring them up to stand and, and start driving some hip extension that way. So something as simple as say a right foot step up will promote the left hip extension on the support side leg as you're stepping up. So, so things like that will be a great diagnostic for you to pay attention to as your, as your client progresses. Now, so let's take away some of the interference that, that's going on here as well. So this person is not going to be a back squatter and you're going to take away hinging activities temporarily because um, the chances of recapturing that ischial tuberosity uh, position um, during a hinge is going to be, be very, very difficult because she's already having trouble. She's demonstrating trouble with that already. Um, the back squat's going to just increase the amount of, of posterior compression you've got, so we want to eliminate that. Now, what we can do, though, is start to use some front-loaded uh, squatting activities like a zercher squat is on the table, a goblet squat is on the table, but what I, what I would do is elevate the heels. What we want to do is we want to move her back towards this early propulsive strategy where we're going to reduce the pressure on, on the sacral base. Um, when you put her into split activities, I would, I would elevate the front leg. Again, I want to reduce the amount of, of, of load on that front leg and I want to promote that posterior expansion and the, the, uh, the front foot elevated split, split squat is a, is a great way to do that. Um, I would also refer you to the offset squatting activity with the heel elevated. Um, I got a video on YouTube um, for the left shift, so, so that is also on the table. Now, once you start to see the straight leg raise normalize and hip external rotation starts to improve, now you can start to reintroduce some, some hinging activities, but I would start with a Camperini deadlift with the heel elevated. Again, what I want to do is I want to reintroduce these activities where she has to now control that ischial tuberosity relative to the femur, but I want to keep her back towards uh, a position that will reduce the sacral base uh, compression. When it comes time to reintroduce the bilateral symmetrical activities like the, those, um, like a, a Romanian deadlift or, or any anything um, that falls into that category, um, Dory, I would use a snatch grip RDL as a reintroducing activity. The starting position, uh, because of the snatch grip, actually reduces the likelihood of getting that sacral base pressure that you would typically get had used like something that would bring the hands in um, 
and, and create a compression in the upper dorsal rostral area. Um, so, so again, we just want to think about eliminating interference as much as we can. But that should give you an idea of one, what you're looking at and, and some strategy that you can use to bring this person out of this. I hope it's helpful. If you have any other questions, please let me know. Everybody have a great Monday. Let's kick off a great week and I'll see you tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Great Tuesday, clinic day, very, very busy. We're going to dig right into um, a Q&A. Um, Alex was on YouTube apparently yesterday. He saw the, the commentary about the, the uh, left shift and some of the sacral compression um, that we were talking about. And so Alex's question basically plays off of yesterday's video where he said, would you use the same strategies to apply for a right shift or would it be somewhat different? Um, and he also mentioned that, yes, we've shown a number of different approaches on how to address these things. But let's go ahead and talk our way through this because I don't know if I've actually laid out much strategy um, for, the, for the right shift. We show, we've shown some exercises for it, but let's, let's talk a little bit about strategy. But let's build this thing um, from, from how we get from this left shifted orientation to the right shifted orientation because it does tend to be a little bit of a, of a progressive kind of a thing. So when we talk about the, the left shift like we talked about yesterday, remember that we're gonna start with a, a left sick world base compression. So we're gonna have to be compressed here. It's gonna push the, the sacrum, so it's gonna be oriented uh, to the right. Now we're still gonna have some, some uh, expansion in this, in this left posterior area. So these will be typically people that, that will have a, a decent straight leg raise. Um, but what happens, because we get this, this sacral base compression here, we're going to get the iterative effect in the dorsal rostral area in the thorax. And so we get this orientation of the entire axial skeleton to the left. So as they squat, they shift back to the left. Now, if we superimpose the anterior compression on top of this, what's going to happen? We get the shape change in the, the left posterior aspect of, of, the, of the pelvis. So we're actually going to turn this ischium a little bit. And what that's going to do, it's going to externally rotate the hip a little bit. It's going to approximate our sacrum to the femur. And so we're going to start to get this oblique tilt. We get the same iterative effect in the posterior lower rib cage, which is going to push forward. And so now we've got a pelvis that's tilted on our right oblique axis. Okay, so if that happens, we're going to lose the external rotation on this right side. So as we move through the squat and as we approach our internally rotated position here, we get the internal rotation of the hip, we get an expansion on the right side. So we're going to get this expansion between the, the, the sacrum and the ischium here. We're going to follow that expansion. So now we've got a squat with a right shift. Okay, so that's how we get to the right shift. Now, we got to start thinking strategy here. So we've got a couple, couple of issues. We've got a two-sided problem. We've got this late propulsive strategy on the left side that's pushing us forward. We've got a shift back into the right hip that we also need to address. So the first thing we have to do is we've got to get everything reoriented. So I would have you uh, go back and take a look at the Camperini uh, deadlift variations from about two weeks ago. I think it was about two weeks ago that we talked about that. 
So what you're going to do is you're going to use a contralateral load. You're going to elevate the left heel. We're going to try to get you back to that early propulsive strategy on the left side. So we've got to get the, the, the sacrum and the pelvis to reorient to the left, number one. Once you recapture your hip internal rotation and your straight leg raise on that left side, then you're going to want to switch and you're going to use the, the ipsilateral load because now what you got to do is we're going to address this right side stuff. So we're going to use the right side to push back into the left side to hold back that, that propulsive strategy. So this is right foot forward stuff. So your Camperini deadlift is going to be right foot forward with the, the load on the left. We can move into some split stance variations at this point as well. Again, right foot forward. So if we wanted to use, say, a split squat with an ipsilateral load, so when I say ipsilateral, it'll be a right hand load with the right foot forward. So this is somebody that is working their way out of a cut, if you will. So by loading on the right side, we're gonna emphasize the right hip external rotation to push us back into the left, maintain that left internal rotation, and delay that left propulsive strategy. Um, we can also use a right foot forward split squat with a left cable load. And what this is going to do, if we maintain the expansion on the left posterior side with that left cable load, we're going to be pushing again with that right foot to push us back into the left side, maintain our left hip injury rotation, delay that propulsive strategy, and then this is going to help us learn to um, restore that much more symmetrical um, presentation in, in, your, in your squat. I think that I've also have a video up here um, on, on one of the uh, the two simple videos where we used the the offset left heel elevated left cable loaded squat variation. So this is going to get you into the deeper deeper aspects of, of your squat and also help you maintain the ability to offset that left pr propulsive strategy that you're going to need to delay to make sure that you can maintain your symmetrical squat and not shift to the right. So Alex, I hope this gives you some strategy in regards to, to the right shift. Um, I think I actually got another squat question for tomorrow. So we had like foot week a couple weeks ago. I guess this is going to be squat week. If you got another squat question, hey, send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com and we will cover those. Have a great day and I will see you tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, time is short, clinic day today, um, but a beautiful day outside, so I'm excited about that. So let's dig right into the Q&A. Apparently it is squat week, so I have another squat question. <clears throat> this comes from Tony. Tony says, thanks for your videos. I've been applying your model, making great changes in my clients, in my client's movement that I didn't think were possible. And looking at movement like squatting, I'm trying to work on my own squat and find that with range of motion testing, I have limited hip external and internal rotation. But when I barbell squat at the gym, if I widen my stance and externally rotate, I can break parallel. I think I'm a wide ISA. So where am I getting my external rotation? Okay. So first things first, let's look at what's going on as we're moving through the excursion of a squat and then we'll kind of figure out where you're getting your range of motion from telling you. So remember that as I'm moving through the squat, I would start through this ER moment here and as I pass through the sticking point, through this 90 degrees plus or minus 30 or so, 
I'm going to move towards internal rotation. So this is just necessary for me to overcome load and, and gravity. So the, the IPA is going to widen there. I'm going to capture more internal rotation of the hip. And then at the end, of course, it's going to be the external rotation. So it's very similar with a squat. Now, since you mentioned barbell squatting, I'm assuming you're going to squat under load, which means that you're probably going to re be reducing some of the relative motion in the pelvis, and based on your measures, I'm guessing you're using a, a, a compressive strategy in the pelvis as well. So you've got an anterior compression, which is stealing some IR. You've got posterior compression, which is going to anteriorly orient you, so you're going to lose some, some ER there. So you've got a lot of compressive strategy in your pelvis, but that's advantageous when we're talking about lifting things that are, that are really, really heavy and moving under load. Now, if, you, if you're missing ER and IR, and as you move through this sticking point, you're going to have to find some IR somewhere to break parallel. And so under those circumstances, what you can do is actually if you deviate your knee laterally. So a lot of people are going to say, well, you're externally rotating the hip. Through this excursion, you are, but as you move through the squat, and I'm going to try to show this on the camera here. So if I fix the foot to the ground versus the way we would measure in an open chain, old school open chain measurement, when I fix the foot to the ground and the pelvis is lowering, I'm actually moving into internal rotation at the hip. So if I fix this, the knee's going to rotate and I'm going to internally rotate that hip. So when you deviate out, Tony, what you're actually doing is you're recapturing some internal rotation of the hip, which is allowing you to break parallel. So this is a common misconception. And, and so it drives a lot of, lot of ineffective strategies to try to recapture hip ranges of motion. So what I would do Tony, is I would start to work on one, restoring your ability to move the pelvis through its full excursion. So, so you're probably anteriorly oriented. You probably need to learn how to capture the posterior orientation. We've got plenty of videos on YouTube to address that. And then I would start to work on some of this internal rotation um, that you're going to need. And it'll give you some more variability in your squat if that's your goal. Um, when we're talking about force production, remember that we're trying to reduce the relative motion to allow us to produce a lot of force. And so there's going to be some give and take here. So if your goal is to increase the range of motion, you need relative movement between the segments. So between the, sac the sacrum and the ilium and the ilium and the, and the hip and so on and so forth. So again, it's all going to depend on what your goal is. If you want to lift heavy things, you've got to reduce the relative movement um, to allow you to produce higher force. If you're trying to recapture relative motions, you might have to sacrifice a little bit of force production in the process, but you also might feel a little bit better as you're moving around during normal activity. So Tony, I hope that gives you an idea of where this range of motion is coming from. If, if you have any questions about this, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com and submit another question, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow, uh, coffee and coaches conference call. Don't forget that. And we've got some new stuff coming up on IFASTU as well. So if you're not on IFSU, uh, get there. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Hey, happy Thursday, everybody. I have NeuroCoffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right. She had diastasis recti, uh, but over the winter, she decided to have surgery. Okay. And to close it, I'm assuming. Yes, sorry, yes. Yeah. Abdominal plasty. Yeah. And 
she started to get where she was going to the physical therapist for is like radiating pain in her neck and down into her arms and back. Now this, this happens. Um, um, so yeah. So what they did is they, they took the end game compensatory strategy and they built it. So, so they, they tightened up her, her rectus abdominis basically. So they pulled the pubis and the, uh, uh, sternum, uh, closer together by accident. Um, and so, so typically, so, so, so picture this for a sec. When you have, when you have a diastasis recti, the abdominals are going to behave very much like a wide ISA. So, so the, um, the pregnancies will, will spread the diastasis, right? And ch chances are um, it was probably more cosmetic than anything else under most circumstances. Yeah, I should say um, that. Yeah. But, like, if, if you can get, you know, the old the, the, the finger measurement, are you familiar? Where they take, they take your fingers and they say, how many fingers wide is your diastasis? And if you get to, like, three, they go, ah, you may want to tighten that up. And so chances are they, they, they pulled everything in and they pulled it down and in as they, as they closed um, the diastasis, right? And so you, you took your wide person and then you pulled the sternum down at the same time. So they tried to close the ISA surgically, okay? And then they pulled it down. So you have to treat this person as such you're going to, have to slowly work them back out of it and you're going to have to recap yeah so here's an interesting little twist of day um you're probably going to have to drive them um into some form of um old school traditional extension mm -hmm. um okay um getting flexion um with an exhalation so, so, so what's going on is she cannot fill the, the upper rib cage right now at all. So, so she's getting pulled down, right? So her flexion is going to be, right, limited. And so, so that's probably going to be your primary KPI um, as far as how you're going to follow this, okay? But, but that's the goal. You're going to have to get air up. Okay. Because she's not actively, she's not actively closing the ISA, which is a requirement for flexion. She's, she's literally, she, they created an AP compression, right? So she's getting squished and pulled down. She'll have some form of inversion in her, in her program. Eventually you're going to want to get her to hang um, maybe one arm at a time or something like that to, to try to, create the expansion upward, but, but again, monitoring, uh, the, uh, her ability to close the ISN, but you know, stuff like sideline becomes important for her, right? Because you can expand one side, right? So you remember my, you know, the, the slinky that I had in the purple room. Mm -hmm. So you're going to side bender like a slinky from side to side. Perfect. I have a, GHR so she can lay to the side. Yeah, that'll be that'd be yeah, yeah, exactly. But but don't don't put her prone because it's not gonna work. But but she's somebody that, that 
regardless of, of what her ISA measurement would be, she has to be able to actively close it to get her arms overhead. Yeah. What are probably um, some good activities? Like an upper dog? Or was it, is that is anybody, a yoga person on here? Like, a, is it, it's like a, a sunrise asana or something? Something where they're looking up, okay? But, but so, the, so the cool thing here is that, is that your, your arm position puts you in, in an ER inhaled position. And so, so but, but you're also actively closing the ISA. And like I said, it's a, it's a little counterintuitive. And it's not about, about being extreme. It's literally just getting air up into the thorax um, while you're closing the ISA. So again, that's why, you know, you start there because she probably doesn't have shoulder flexion and then you start to work um, upward. Bill, when you said that you, you wouldn't put this person in prone, um, are we talking like all prone positions, like quadruped and um, prone on elbows and okay. And yeah. that's, is that because, is that because it's going to, she's going to crunch that she's going to tend to crunch down too much. Yeah. She's going to try to bend more than expand so and again this is a really common this is a really common uh issue with with, with putting people into quadruped anyway is is that people don't recognize the difference between bending the spine forward and expanding the the posterior thorax because they are not the same and so what what you don't want to do is reinforce the 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 shorter distance between sternum and pubis for her. But under most circumstances, for most people that have not had, you know, traumatic incidents and they just have movement-related issues, the restrictions are just concentric orientation, right? And so um, what the what the table tests represent are are um, the areas that that would be most compressed. And so so when I have a limitation on the table, I have a compressive strategy that's typically limiting that. And then you have to understand where that compressive strategy is. But if you know where that compressive strategy is, and you know what movement would then be limited because of that, now you can go right into the gym. So you don't have to lay people on the table. You just have to understand how these things work, right? You just have to understand the relationships. And then you go into the gym and you go, oh, you can't do that? So when I ask you to take this kettlebell and press it overhead, you have to go into a side bend to get your hand into the upright position. It's like, oh, okay, so you can't reach overhead. So chances are I have a compressive strategy that's limiting that movement. Where's the compressive strategy going to be? And I say, it's going to be in X spot. And then I go into the gym and I say, well, what activity can I do that doesn't compress that? Right? That's the strategy. That's literally what we do. And so then the, then the exercise or the movement becomes the assessment, right? And the comparator we just have to under, get, get really good at understanding the relationships in regards to the shape change that produces movement. But that's, Make it sound super easy, but it's not. <laughs> hey, so. But it could be. It's simple. It's not yeah, easy. Simple, simple. It's, it's yeah. simple, it's not easy. There's a, there's, like the, like the, the rule is very, very simple, right? The rule is, you can only move, you only have two strategies for movement. That's it. There's only two, right? I can make something bigger. I can make something smaller. And based on that shape change, I produce a shape that moves me through space. That's it. Okay. All you got to do is recognize then um, if that is the case, if I smush one area, 
how does it affect my ability to do everything else? Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. So obviously we're in the purple room today. I needed the help from Alfred here. We're gonna talk about what it takes to acquire the rack position in the front squat. I got a question from Derek who's having some trouble. He's not sure what strategies to use to help him improve his, his front rack for the front squat. So we're gonna talk about how we get there, what it's actually gonna take, what some of the limitations are, and then some demonstrations of some activities that are gonna help you improve your capability to achieve the rack position in the front squat. One of the things that we have to appreciate about getting into this, this front rack position for a front squat is that we have to move the shoulder through an excursion of range of motion to even acquire this position. So if you recall, this lower part of, of traditional shoulder flexion is actually an external rotation bias. And then we have to bias ourselves towards internal rotation. So if I have a limitation in either position, I'm going to have a, a limitation on my ability to acquire my front rack position in the front squat or a power clean. If I have a posterior lower compression on the back side of this rib cage, it's going to limit my ability to acquire my external rotation bias as I start to elevate my arm. What it's going to do, it's going to move me towards an internal, internal rotation bias too soon because the scapula is going to start to move. It's going to start to compress against the back side of the rib cage. And then by the time I try to get into my internal rotation bias, I've already exhausted all my internal rotation. So now it's almost impossible for me to comfortably acquire the rack position in the front squat. If I do have posterior expansion and I can get through this external rotation bias without difficulty, but I don't have an up pump handle capability or an expansion in the anterior upper rib cage, I'll never have enough internal rotation in the shoulder to acquire the rack position in the front squat comfortably. So those folks that think that external rotation is the limitation in holding the front rack position are only partially correct because it's the early limitation of external rotation that is a limiting factor. But it could be an internal rotation problem or an external rotation problem that ultimately limits my ability to acquire and utilize the front rack position comfortably. If you lack the up pump handle in the front, meaning you don't have enough internal rotation, what you're gonna probably see is you're gonna to start to see the elbow deviate laterally. And so this is somewhat trying to reacquire some external rotation so you have more internal rotation available to you to actually acquire and utilize the rack position. So the inability to keep the upper back expanded not only restricts my ability to hold my position, but it's also gonna make it very difficult to increase the load of my front squat. So now when we think about activities that we want to utilize to reinforce our ability to expand in the appropriate areas to acquire the rack position, we want to think about, okay, what expands the posterior lower? What can give me the up pump handle? and What can give me that yielding strategy in the upper back? So there's a lot of activities that actually reinforce all of these aspects of this expansion all at the same time. So this is where bear crawls really come into play. Because of the orientation of the body, I'm going to emphasize that lower posterior expansion of the rib cage. I'll immediately get the yielding strategy in the upper back. And because of the shoulder girdle position as I'm going through the propulsive phase of quadruped, I'm also gonna create the up pump handle position. Plate squats are a great way to reinforce this early propulsive strategy that we're going to utilize in the front squat as well. The heels elevated position puts the ankle on the early propulsive phase. It's gonna create a posterior expansion in the pelvis as well as that posterior expansion in the upper back. 
if we need to do something that's a little bit more rehabish or we're having trouble acquiring the position to begin with, we want to do something that's a little bit simpler. So we're going to start in maybe a child's pose, which is actually the bottom position of the front squat. We'll move into an inverted position, which is going to invert our airflow and allow us to increase our ability to expand through the upper thorax. We're going to bring that pump handle up and expand the, the posterior upper back. To challenge us a little bit more then, we're going to bring you back to upright and we're going to do something like a backward sled drag, which is also going to place the foot in an early propulsive strategy and teach us to expand the upper back against some resistance. So there's a lot of activities that we, we can utilize rather than trying to rely on some ineffective form of stretching, which might give you some, some sort of temporary impact in your ability to acquire the rack position. But ultimately, you have to reteach yourself to expand in the appropriate areas, to move the shoulder through its full excursion to get to the rack position. Now, worst case scenarios, we still have to train. So what are you going to be your substitutions? So right away, we elevate the heels, we get posterior expansion, so maybe that's going to be sufficient for you to acquire a better rack position and a more effective front squat. If you can't acquire the position for the shoulder, a really common substitution is to take some lifting straps, wrap them around the bar, and that's going to allow you to at least get the, the shoulder into a, a position where we can actually support the bar across the shoulders. But keep in mind, I still need to get that anterior posterior expansion in the thorax so I have a place to rest that weight. So the expansion of the thorax provides us the, the shelf that we're going to ultimately use to hold the rack position. Derek, hopefully that gives you some strategies and some ideas that you can utilize to improve your own front squat. If you have any questions, send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com. I will see you guys next week.